Hi, this is presenter Crystal Dinapoli, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R each Sunday afternoon. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU. Uh, but before I go any further, I have had a pretty long day. <laughs> I've been uh, traveling back and forth across Melbourne uh, for all of my random ob- odd jobs. So I've been driving from Boomerang Country over to Wurundjeri, back to Boomerang, now back at Wurundjeri. And I feel so uh, humbled, I guess, to be traveling across these two different countries who have such a long history and foundation of science and knowledge that has helped our people uh, sustain ourselves for tens of thousands of years. And so before proceeding, I want to acknowledge that I am currently airing out on Wurundjeri lands, and I want to acknowledge elders past and present and acknowledge their continued connection to this beautiful country and these beautiful skies. But uh, yeah, today we, uh, we have a special guest who you may have heard of before. You may have heard of on this very station. We're going to be having a conversation with fellow Triple R radio broadcaster, Yorta Yorta man, Daniel James. Daniel is the host of Triple R's The Mission, which explores the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. As well as broadcasting, Daniel is a writer and consultant who is actually currently in the process of writing his first book. So welcome, Daniel. Great to be here. Thank you for having me on. I, I feel like it's sort of tit for tat. You know, I finally get to return the favour of being a guest of yours in the past. I've had you on my show during uh, Radiothon. Yeah. And um, all reports was that um, we we got to a record Radiothon because you came on my show. I'm pretty sure that's... I heard I that that's too. Uh, pretty much it, really. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have that confirmed because I did have my suspicions. Um, but, well, I've had know. it reported to me by very high authorities that um, you've got to save the line in terms of like record. Amazing, all right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, that'll go straight to my head. Um, <laughs> put it on your CV, put it on your LinkedIn. Go, I will. Go for it straight away. <laughs> as soon as this is finished, it'll be right up there. <laughs> so before, we, uh, before we've come on, uh, on air, we're having a chat because we actually, we both come from a very beautiful region of Victoria. So I found out that you're from Wang. Yes, Wang. <laughs> and then I found out, then you found out that I'm from uh, Euroa. Yes. And, um, you know, the amount, the amount of times in my life that I've said, oh, you're from Euroa, Euroa the boat, I'll catch you the fish. <laughs> um, it's really boring, really inappropriate. But um, it's absolutely, absolutely beautiful part of the world. The rivers, the, the mountains, the, uh, the lakes, the, the wetlands. It's really, really, really blessed. My, my dad was actually born in um, Wangaratta and um, he lived in a, um, uh, a, a flat bought by the Salvation Army and the Wangaratta Football Club because his dad was um, a gun footballer and um, so they wanted him to play for the Wangaratta Magpies. Yeah. And so they bought them, well, they didn't buy them a house, they just provided accommodation. But the accommodation was in between the junction of the uh, King and the Ovens River. And this is before the levee banks were, um, were oh built. Oh, my God. And so some of my dad's earliest memories was actually waking up hopping out of bed and jumping into knee-high water yeah and he actually got um rheumatic fever um as a result of um the living conditions when rheumatic fever used to be a thing this far south yeah still a thing um you know up north in terms of you know third world conditions 
Um, but yeah, I, I have a great affinity with uh, uh, Wayne Garota. You know, um, a far greater affinity than uh, Nick Cave does because he, yeah. keeps, he keeps slagging it off. <laughs> and I've never liked him for that. Yeah. So it's like, come on, mate. It's a beautiful part of the world. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's not Wayne Garota. But I'm not going to go too heavy on Nick because he's got some really sort of awful yeah, issues he's, he's going through at the moment. But, yeah, he's dealing with some But on that issue, you're wrong, Nick. No, I, I you, okay, this is, I don't know if it's going to blow your mind or not, but the house that I actually um, grew up in, in the final years of my teen years, yeah. actually is at the the junction of the ovens in King Rivers near the, near the levee banks. That's how I describe it to people, because it really is where they overlap. So you go, you don't, you don't cross the bridge. No. You turn right. Yes. At the bridge. Yeah. <laughs> this is so weird. And then on the flat, then you get, get on a bit of a flat, and then on your left... Yeah, the first left. You're joking. You're actually. This is. This so is <laughs> Sorry, I'm, 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 this blow. This is blowing my mind. What a this small is, this world. Is, this is far more impressive than any sort of interstellar galactic thing you can tell me about God, right now. God, I wonder if it's the same house. Because like, uh, no, it's not we, there anymore. But it might be okay. the same land. Might be. Yeah, the people yeah. starting to build now in that that left turn. So yeah, like, it's pretty safe. Yeah. Now. Yeah, well, yeah, they've got the levees, um, yeah. but the flooding, the fact that you mentioned that, like that, that was a huge concern for so much of my life. And uh, I remember we went to the Wayne Garata show, which I usually really enjoy, um, but we're all sort of on watch of that the levee was, uh, might have broken. And this was a few years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it ended up breaking while we're actually at the Wayne Garata show, but it broke in the opposite direction from our house. Sure, lucky. Yeah, but. The, the, the king and the ovens are both, in Australian terms, really sort of big rivers, you know, yeah, yeah. and they fly strongly during the spring in particular. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love, I love Wayne Garata. I, I, I went up there for the Blues Festival and um, saw Johnny Johnson, who was uh, Chuck Berry's right-hand man for a number of years. They ended up suing each other because uh, Chuck, uh, sorry, Johnny thought that Chuck uh, stole a lot of his riffs. Ah. <laughs> but um, uh, great pubs up there, great accommodation. You turn right there, go up the Beechworth. Yeah, um, beautiful country. Up the hill. It's beautiful. And and so your your background is, um, so that's sort of like, uh, your role you're saying is sort of like Tanarong land. Well, it's interesting, right? Yeah. Because there was a, um, a determination um, a few years back that said that one side of the Seven Creeks is Tanarong land and the other side of the Seven Creeks is um, Yorta Yorta land. Yeah. Now, we know that uh, natural sort of well, like rivers and mountains and uh, lakes and swamps are of often the, the natural bound boundaries of um, uh, tribal lands. Mm -hmm. um, and I always was always interested in that because the, if, if you were to run as fast as you can and take a leap, you could probably jump over the Seven Creeks quite, <laughs> quite easily. Um, so I always thought it was your to your land, but I'm happy to go with powers that be that, that say it's Tunnerong land because mm. I haven't looked into it thoroughly enough. But either way, when I was growing up, yeah. um, we had no clue who the traditional owners were, um, you know, who, who came before us. Uh, we didn't recognise things like scar trees. We didn't recognise or know that there were sort of like rock paintings in some of the foothills around Yuroa. Uh, we knew far more about Ned Kelly than we did yeah. about um, the, the traditional owners. Yeah. And that has changed dramatically in my lifetime, and it's a great thing. But um, when I was growing up, um, you would swear that, um, you know, the, 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 the colonials were the first people there. And, uh, you know, there's a family who owns a, a wool run that goes back, you know, four generations. And that kind of makes it sound like, oh, well, that's time in a memoriam. Um, but you, you never knew or never learned or never 
was were told about um, he was there before that. Yeah. And we know that there were people there before that. But um, things are changing. And so if you go back to your hour now, when I grew up, it was uh, basically a sheep farming community. Um, now it is far more cosmopolitan. Um, there are still what I term rednecks about. But um, in terms of people's understanding and willing willingness to, to, to know about Indigenous history and um, uh, Indigenous knowledge, it has changed so much. And I think we're actually living in a bit of a golden age when it comes to um, Australians being open to want to learn about how far we go back. You know, we don't go back 230 years, we go back 60,000, 65,000 yeah. years. And um, that's been a change in my lifetime and it's been amazing to see. Well, I'm glad you're seeing that sort of positive change because I know I'm a bit of a youngin, but I know how uh, poor um, the coverage of Aboriginal culture and history was in my education, particularly in primary school, like hardly a mention. Yeah. And it was such a confusing experience being a young Aboriginal kid uh, to hear sort of like there's nothing here prior. And you're like, but what 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 am I then? If I'm Aboriginal and I'm, I'm different and I was here, f- my family and my, my ancestors were here first, but then also there wasn't anything prior to colonisation. What am I? You know? Yeah, yeah. And there's... And, and Wangaratta itself, places like Wangaratta and um, Benalla, it's kind of this. It's still really sort of contested. Yeah, it is. In terms of whose land it traditionally was. Yeah, I didn't so, know until recently either. That was actually a big shock for me. Yeah. So Benalla is what we think is a either a bangarang word or a waveru word that means big water. Yeah. And so Benalla was settled there, and we had the the Faithful Creeks sort of massacre and all that that, um, that happened around there in the very, very early parts of um, uh, First Contact. But there are huge swathes of that land. I remember spending some time at Mount Buffalo um, for, for a holiday when it used to be open for that sort of, um, sort of luxury accommodation type scenario. And just thinking that they would talk specifically and extensively about, you know, the history of Bogon Moth and how they were like a, a protein source for the original inhabitants of the land. But they didn't tell you who the original ha- inhabitants of the land are. Yeah. Now, that's still contested as far as I can see. And one of the things that makes it contested is that um, in terms of the decimation of uh, colonialism slash invasion, there are literally only... My understanding is a handful of descendants of the Waveru left. So that means that they are unable to, or they have less of a chance or less of an opportunity to advocate for themselves, where there are other tribes like Yorta Yorta, um, Wurundjeri, uh, Wotharong, uh, Waveru, um, and, and a whole bunch of others, where there are a significant amount of descendants left. But if you think about it, there were no missions in and around Wangaratta or Bright mm. or Myrtleford or leading up to the high country. Mm. And where those missions existed, then there was actually a, um, a, a gathering of sorts. And so the, the Yorta Yorta in particular, first at Maloga and then at Kamragunja, were able to sort of gather and regroup and then spawn a modern version of Aboriginality from, from there. Whereas um, the way I read it, you know, the Waveru never had that, never had that chance, yeah. and the decimation must have been so immense, so immediate that um, there were generations of people lost through disease, um, uh, massacres, but mainly through disease um, within within twenty five years. I remember seeing a an article um, in the Benalla Enzyme from about. 
1870 or something, and it was basically um, a, an article on the last surviving member of the Bangarang. Like, and when they say last surviving member, they mean, you know, um, in quotation marks, <laughs> um, full, full blood. Yeah, classic. That, that's like 50 years. I mean, sorry, that's like 20 years after sort of proper first contact. Yeah. And that's how thick the decimation the decimation was. And so um, there's no wonder that you and I, growing up in Wangaratta and in Yarrawa, had no clue like who the original inhabitants were because the decimation was so quick, so fast. And, of course, white history doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah, no, I, I I feel that a lot. I know for myself that I probably have a greater awareness than the bulk majority of Australians in this country. Yeah. And even still, with more conversations I have with elders and different community members, you learn so much more about the horrific process that's happened over the last 200 years of um, essentially trying to completely destroy our culture. And it's, it's so shocking. Yeah. And what's shocking more to me is that most people I know have no idea about it at all. Well, most most people. I mean, the the Waveru Wangaratta comes from the Waveru name, um, yeah. from the Waveru title um, for the home of cormorants. So you think about it; it's a luscious sort of river system. There are wetlands were wet, wetlands there, and so the, the local mob there called it the home of cormorants. Um, I only found out relatively recently that uh, Yarrawa means joyful. Oh. Um, and it means joyful in, in Tanarong language. So there is, there is, you know, um, definitely Tanarong uh, lineage mm. in and around the place. But I um, also remember reading that um, uh, different tribes and different mobs used to holiday in different lands. And so there, there are uh, um, records of um, Wiradjuri people coming down and spending time in Wangaratta, wow. in and around Wangaratta. <laughs> yeah just to get a bit of time off country and just hang out. Um, but the northeast of Victoria is just so sort of um, fertile in terms of the river systems oh, gorgeous, and yeah. the song lines. And so, you know, you follow the Goulburn all the way down, you're going to get to a place like Seymour. You follow the Broken River down, you get to Bendala or Benwawa. You follow the ovens and then all these things follow, um, flow into um, Dungala, you know, the, you know, the Murray. And that's how people would traverse the land, and that's where corroborates would, would happen. Um, and the fact that, that all that and all the knowledge of that was lost with, within 50 years um, of first contact. And it just makes you think, well, okay, well, you wonder why the population, the Aboriginal population now is, is still traumatised through that? That's, mm. that's, a, that's like that. That's in time, as you know better than most... Um, that's like that. Yeah. That's just there. And then it's still there and it's still happening. And then you pile on top of that the, the oh, I see. It's like we, we had first contact, then we had um, uh, uh, disease, then we had um, the massacres, and then we had the clerks, the public service that would come through and come up with things like the half caste act, yeah. which would remove anyone that was half caste from mixing with their own full blood family. And so all of these things lead to this absolute decimation of the place we call now, we now call Victoria. And is it any wonder that we don't know, and then the broader population doesn't know anything about what was here before? 
Another classic example, I'm on a roll. No, I love this. I'm, I'm learning so much. I, already, I have questions I'm storing in my head, but please keep going because I'm just so fascinated. Another, another thing that's really, really telling that I, that I found, so I, I, we both grew up on Cully Country, yeah. as it's called. Yeah. Um, instead of getting Tanarong people to trekking through the hills um, of the Strathbogie Ranges and th- into the, um, the alpine areas of... Um, the Bright and Myrtleford and stuff, they had to get black trackers from Queensland to come and do that because there was no one left here to do it. And this is 1878, 1877, 79. Wow. And so instead of relying on the the, um, uh, the local Tunnerong mob who would know the land like the back of their hand and would know every sort of hiding place to look out and be able to track someone like um, Kelly and the Kelly gang down, they had to go to Queensland to get some black trackers down because there was no one left. And that's how quick it happened. That is just, uh, honestly, it, like, it's just it's just shocking. I, um, I really feel like there needs to be a massive overhaul to the way that we teach Australian history, like this country's history in general, because these are things that people have no idea about. In particular, I know people don't know a lot about the missions, right? Yeah. Um, and I know that that sort of ties into a lot about uh, your knowledge space and, um, you know, where your sort of families come from. But um, in regards to the missions, one thing that I learned that I found really shocking, because there's, there's heaps of shocking things about the whole system, um, but that in order to sort of leave the mission, if you were even given that possibility, you had to completely cut off the rest of your family that you wouldn't yeah. associate with them. And so, oh yeah, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about, because you have this interest in the history of that sort of northern part of Victoria and you are working on a new piece. Mm-hmm. Wh- why, what is this and how does this all sort of tie together? So you, for, for, for about 30 years or so, New South Wales was a better place for Aboriginal people to live on a mission than Victoria because I think it was like the um, maybe the 1850s or 1860s, they introduced this thing called the Half Caste Act. And so they, um, the government and the Aborigines Protection Board, as they called them, assumed that um, uh, the Aborigines, as they called them, were a dying race. And so, okay, well, how, and they thought, thought about it two ways. They thought about how can we make life as comfortable as possible for this dying race and how do we make sure that they die out? (laughs) And so they would do things like separate families, um, uh, half-castes, and I'm using uh, uh, inverted commas here. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, How would they... They would separate half-castes from their full-blooded family. So that was to basically make sure and breed out any sort of culture from from half castes being associated with their families and so they did that and so places like Kamragunja which were on the New South Wales side of um, Mangala the Murray River um, New South Wales for some reason was a little bit slower in terms of getting an Aborigines protection board so you would have people flock from Corrindirk um, from um, other places uh, Bangarang uh, Yorta Yorta of course because it's on Yorta Yorta country flocked to at first um, Maloga which was on the, also in New South Wales and was a private enterprise led by a guy called Daniel Matthews who was a missionary and then later to Cumbragunja which was actually set aside by the New South Wales government um, in terms of acreage to try the experiment of Aborigines sort of uh, tolling their own land and, and trying to earn a living from it 
Um, but what what the difference was is that okay, well, you would you could, you could stay with family. Um, you know, if if um, someone like William Cooper's um, family, his mother was um, you know a, a full blood again in inverted commas. Mm-hmm. He was able to stay with her, and he was able to stay with her on on, on country. And that gradually started to change in New South Wales, but it didn't really happen until the 20th century. But in Victoria, the Half-Caste Act ripped apart families, ripped apart culture, and stopped people from being able to practice the culture and see their their loved ones. And because um, Victorians, and I say Victorians in the the age sense, you know, the Victorian age sense, were so good at um, keeping uh, uh, records, and, and, and keeping um, letters that were written to places like the Aborigines Protection Board and to the state government and to the Premier and to the Minister for Aborigines Affairs and all that stuff, you can see this absolutely tragic story play out where um, uh, mothers would say, I want to go home and go to Lake Ties to be with my um, mother and father. I am sick with, tuber- with the tuberculosis and I th- feel that they're able to look after my um, children there while um, I recover. And then you just get letters from, from clerks, you know, saying, sorry, unfortunately, we're not unable to say that. We wish you the best of luck. But, but under the Act, you can't go back there and, and spend time with them. Oh, God. Um, and so that was one advantage that a place like Kamragunja had, which was just over the river, um, uh, ostensibly, you know, in terms of modern day, modern day terms, Victorian, and so people would go there, and it was okay. It was an okay place, probably up until about um, maybe the nineteen twenties, and then the whole thing of removing children from from their families started to happen in earnest as a policy, and that's what we call the Stolen Generations, which went up to about. Um, I, correct me if I'm wrong, anyone out there, but um, went up to as late as the nineteen eighties. Yeah. And um, that sort of decimated Kamragundra as well. And so you ended up having, in 1939, the the walk-off from the Kamragundra mission um, with people going as far south as um, Marupna on the banks of Kyala, the Golden River, to just live on flats, on the flats there in traditional life, in humpies and tin sheds. And they've, you know, I've spoken to people that, that grew up there at the time and I was and they, they say it was just the happiest time of their life because they were together and they were away from um, the black cars, the black governmental cars that would turn up and, and try and relocate children. And um, so it's, it's, it's a rich history and it's something that, that people don't know. And it's something that a lot of um, uh, Aboriginal people don't know too because mm. why would they? Yeah. You know, where are they going to get taught it? You know, if people who grow up in... Um, uh, away from mob, but it, you know, are Aboriginal and identify as Aboriginal. Um, unless there's that oral history that is passed down to you, we we're going to find that out. No one's going to tell you. No one's going to tell you that the day that the Queen travelled from Bendigo to Shepparton in 1954, um, she drove f- between Marupna and um, Shepparton, and the flats were at um, a place called uh, Dash's Paddock. And to protect the Queen's virtuous eyes from the hideous sight of uh, uh, natives um, camping in tin sheds and huts, they put up um, uh, tarpaulin um, uh, um, 
fencing, so she couldn't see them. Oh my god! Yeah, that's a story right there. That's a huge story, but and that's a story that actually adds to what we know about Australia and what we know about where we've come from, how far we've got to go. Um, it's, but it's fascinating, and if you if you could tell those stories without apportioning blame, yeah, then people are open to it, and I think that people are more open to hearing those stories now than ever. I definitely agree. I've noticed in the past, I've, you know, I'm, I'm young, I'm in my late 20s now, so I get that I have like a different experience from people of different ages. Yep. But even I have encountered that when uh, my classrooms would try and have a t- conversation about the history of Australia, there does seem to be that a lot of um, other students get defensive. They do, yeah. And, and I find that a shame too, because like it's, it's something that <laughs> then gets in the way of any sort of truth telling. It's you know, I, I do agree that there has to sort of be a way to go about these topics that, you know, we can really confront what's happened. Well, I, I remember very vividly, I was fortunate to have um, what we called a social science teacher back in uh, Yarrawa High School back in the day, um, a fellow called uh, Jeff Starkey. And he actually, um, and I, I'm yet to find anyone of my generation that had a teacher that actually told sort of true history around some of this stuff. And I remember him one day in class saying, um, uh, you know, Aboriginal people were um, murdered uh, for stealing stealing sheep. And I remember someone in, um, in the classroom saying, well, if they stole sheep, of course they deserve to be murdered. Oh, my God. So that's, that's, where, I'm, that's where I'm coming from. Yeah. That's where I was um, in, the, um, in the mid to late 90s. Yeah. Um, that's what the attitude was then. I think that attitude still, you know, you know, is about, of course, mainly mm. through um, the, the the politics that we that we have at the moment. But that is changing, and it's changing, and it's changed dramatically, and it's still changing. And I think that's a, a fantastic thing to see. I think it's a golden age in terms of Indigenous artists, Indigenous musicians, Indigenous, indigenous writers being able to tell true stories and for people being open to hear that it's um exciting and devastating um and dismaying all at once yeah no i i fully get where you're coming from um i feel like it's a similar perspective to what i've been able to have at the moment and so for anyone who's listening in because i know we've been on a yarn but i just didn't want to break the flow (laughs) at all um but i'm you know you're listening to indigenuity and uh, we're having a chat with daniel james yorta yorta man and fellow broadcaster here on triple r of the of the show the mission um were you happy to tell us a little bit about the the project that you're working on at the moment? You are writing a book. Yes, yeah, so I've um, uh, the fools at Affirm Press have signed me on for a um, uh, for a book that I'm producing that I'm still working on at the moment in terms of um, getting the manuscript to them. But I'm hoping by this time next week that they will have they will have the manuscript Exciting. on their desk. Yeah, um, and I hope it's not crap. <laughs> I'm sure it won't be. <laughs> um, but it's actually, I'm actually working on a um, kind of like a uh, historical fiction mm-hmm. around the life and times of William Cooper and his contemporaries. He was the famous Yorta Yorta advocate. And, you know, I'm, I'm related to him and I'm related to many of the people that I'm writing about. So I'm trying to be as careful and as diligent and as caring as I can to their legacy and their story. But I remember sort of reading a... Um, and there are a couple, the, uh, a biography of, of William Keeper. And there was this line in, 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 in it where just after they moved to Kamragunja, um, his wife, Annie, passed away from typhoid 
Um, and nine days later, his um, son, Bartlett, died of, oh. of typhoid as right. Now, that's an important capturing of history that, um, that they put in that biography, but it's two lines. So what I'm trying to do with this little bit of work that I'm doing is trying to describe and explain and trying to understand and express what that actually must have been like okay, yep. to, to live through that and then to become the man that he became and to be the advocate that he became. And hopefully by doing that, I, I'm able to paint a picture of, well, you know how he and the Australian Aborigines League marched to the German consulate in 1938 to protest the treatment of the Jews in Europe. Very significant. Before anyone else did. Yeah. Um, if you know his full story in all the tumult that surrounds it, then you will fully, hopefully, <laughs> appreciate what an amazing act that was for him and his contemporaries and the people that he mentored to do. And that's just one element of his story. So that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. I've no idea whether it's any good. We'll see. Um, and when it's published, I'll, I'll come back on your show. And oh, no, please do. I, I can definitely tell um, clearly you've shown how passionate you are about culture, about history, particularly in that region. And the fact that you have these family ties that you're trying to represent in a way, I guess, from like a, a sort of like narrative emotional point that has sort of been left out of, I guess, some of those historical tellings of these yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a huge part of our culture to make sure that we make our um, oral traditions of storytelling as evocative as possible. Otherwise, they don't stick. Yeah. yeah. You know you know that. Yeah. As a, yeah, <laughs> science encoded into story, we have yeah. to make it memorable. Yeah. So that's what I'm trying trying to do. So yeah. we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, it might be crap. Um, it might be good. <laughs> it might be somewhere in between. As long as it's not beige, I don't care. Um, but... Um, yeah, so look, absolute pleasure being on, on your show. Um, I'm a member of um, the PAG, so I personally pressed for you to have your own show on Sunday. Oh, so, um, thank you. But it was a no-brainer because um, everyone unanimously agreed. So oh, that is so touching. No sweat. Thank you so much so for your support. And know everything. that you belong on the grid and you um, um, are staying on the grid because you belong here. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. That really does uh, mean a lot to me, especially coming from you. I have a great respect. I'm sure your book is going to be incredible. Uh, but thank you for your time. Have a Enjoy the rest of your weekend. <laughs> I will. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Daniel. And so uh, we, were just we were just talking with, not listening, <laughs> to uh, Daniel James, who is also the host of Triple R's The Mission. And uh, we were having a pretty long conversation, which I feel like I learned a lot from, talking about some of the history up in the northeast of Victoria, which is where we both come from. And uh, he made a point talking about how, uh, you know, when we when we write stories, when we tell stories in our cultures, you know, we try and make them interesting so they stick. And this is really important when it comes to talking about Indigenous science. In Indigenous science, the way that we've been able to transmit scientific knowledge across generations, being able to record events that happened tens of thousands of years ago, have been through encoding science into these stories. And so I wanted to have a uh, pour a bit of a, a spotlight onto uh, a group of my favourite stars, which feature in quite a lot of stories for different Aboriginal communities and also Indigenous cultures around the world. And so uh, in Indigenous knowledge systems, our stars are really important. Quite often, they are really significant reference points for a bunch of different knowledge systems. 
So they tell us not only about the changes in the sky that we're experiencing throughout the year, but they can actually tell us about uh, impending weather events by the change of their colour, um, their brightness and their twinkling. We can be able to predict different weather patterns. Uh, they let us know about seasonal change, so those longer sort of climate cycles, based on their position throughout the year. Um, so stars can tell us everything. And I wanted to shine a spotlight on uh, my favourite cluster of stars, which is actually the Pleiades, or the Seven Sisters. So I've recently had a book come out, which is called Astronomy Sky Country. I co-authored it with fellow Gomoroi astronomer Carly Noon. And uh, I got to talk briefly about the Pleiades in it, because the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters, they're special to me. They're special to many people right across the globe. But when it comes to Aboriginal knowledge traditions, they actually uh, inform us about a lot of the changes in our environment that we need to be aware about. For example, on this show uh, on Indigenuity in the past, we've spoken a lot about cultural burning, how caring for country with fire is really important, and it's a practice that we have not been able to do to its full extent across the period of invasion and colonisation. And it's something that is frequently discussed because we keep going through rather horrific cycles um, relating to bushfires. The Pleiades actually are used as an indicator for Yolnu clans of when it's the right time of year to actually discuss, um, to, uh, to conduct these cool burns, which I think is pretty amazing. The Pleiades as well, uh, for Nyarindiri communities, so we're just listening to Nyarindiri Woman by Ruby Hunter, Nyarindiri communities actually use the heliacal rising of the Pleiades, which just means it's a fancy words for saying that when the Pleiades actually rise in the morning, so throughout the year, where the Seven Sisters or the Pleiades are will change. They are what we call an equatorial constellation. So in the summer, they're right overhead. But in the winter, they're actually uh, they're not, not above in our night skies. And so the chance that you get to see them is actually in those early morning hours. And so when it's this time of year, this is the sign for the Narangeri that this is when the Murnog plant is actually flowering. My favourite use for the Pleiades, though, actually ties back to Gomoroi tradition, so my mob, probably no surprise to anyone, but uh, they're used as like a seasonal calendar. And there are a lot of really beauty, beautiful stories which describe this. They describe the Pleiades in Gomoroi or in Gamilaray language as being Murei Murei or Mie Mie, which means a group of young women. And so this group of young women are usually regarded as being these beings of frost. And this is because in those winter periods, as I said before, they are below the horizon. We look to see them in the mornings. But when they're actually setting below the horizon in winter, they're said to be bringing the frost with them. Because when they touch the ground, the ground is covered in this iciness. And yet, there are many other stories across Australia which have a different interpretation. Instead of relating the Pleiades to the cold, we have communities in the central desert who actually associate them with the heat. And that's because they're acknowledging that in the summertime, when we have our hottest temperatures, the Pleiades are directly overhead, roaring down on us. And so, uh, yeah, that's my little, my little astronomy taster for you this week. Um, be sure to uh, tune in in future weeks because I am known to randomly decide to conduct a quick little uh, lesson on Indigenous science. So today's uh, show, we were having a chat with Daniel James. He's a Yorta Yorta man, writer and consultant and radio broadcaster actually here at Triple R on the show, The Mission. And uh, we had a great conversation about um, some of the history in northeast Victoria, just because we've come from there. We can't really speak like to what the true history is, but it is interesting to acknowledge a lot of 
um, what we do know and a lot of what we don't know. So if you are interested in learning a bit more about that and the basis for the book that he's writing at the moment, uh, make sure to go to rrr.org.au and have a listen playing this back. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R every Sunday afternoon. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU.